0: We started this study in apologetics, defending the faith, by saying that the most important apologetic of all is an authentic walk with Christ. There is no replacement for that. If you have nothing else, you've done more than most people because a person who really walks with Jesus, that's an argument the world has no response to. They can't, they can't argue against a life that looks like Jesus. They just don't see it enough in the world. And so that's the most important thing. But then we also said you need a wise approach and you need confidence in the truth. Now, starting next week, we'll talk about that third aspect. All the way through the end of the year, Lord willing, we'll be talking about different arguments that non-Christians make against our faith and how we can respond. And that's not so that I think you're going to memorize every word I say or I'm going to say all the right words, but simply so that you can walk out every at the end of every evening saying... Okay, on that issue, now I get it. Now I understand. I don't need to be worried or afraid that non-Christians are right and we're wrong, that that there's some kind of weak spot in my faith. Even if you don't remember everything that was said, you'll be able to respond when someone attacks you or, or confronts you and say, I don't really know what to say to you now, but I can get the answers. Okay? But that middle one is what we've been talking about the last three weeks. Having a wise approach. Just having knowledge is not enough if you don't approach people with wisdom. And so the first night of that, we talked about how you have to keep focused on the gospel. It's very tempting when you disagree with somebody on a variety of issues. It's very tempting, especially for some of us. If you're given a certain kind of personality, it's very tempting to argue over all those things and just to get into arguments all the time and debate and argue And there are times when they have that kind of personality and they're going to want to come to you and argue over what you and I would call secondary scriptural issues or or moral dilemmas or moral issues where they differ with you on the Christian faith. And you can discuss those things. It's not like we should run and hide from those kinds of questions, but our goal should always be to steer them back toward the gospel. Because the gospel saves. If you convince them they're wrong about the sanctity of life or about the definition of marriage or about, uh, you know, whether the world was created by God in six days or over millions of years through evolution, okay, you've won a a battle, but you haven't won the war. That's not going to save them. So our goal is not to change them. It's to change, it's to bring them to Jesus. He's the one that changes them. That should be our goal, is to stick to the gospel. In the second week, that was last week, we talked about how we have to be committed to long-term relationships. There was a time when witness training focused on what I call drive-by evangelism, and that's not to say it disparagingly, but hit-and-run moments where you, you run into somebody for the first time, and you immediately ascertain whether they're a Christian or not. If they're not, you present the gospel to them, and you you offer them an opportunity to accept or reject and and you're going to lead a lot of people to Christ that way. And that was a very effective way of sharing your faith because we used to live in a country that was nominally Christian, where most people at least had a respect for the Christian faith, had a desire to, to know more about God. And so when you would share the gospel, the response of many, not everybody, but the response of many was usually something like, oh, Well, I always thought you had to be a perfect person, or I thought you just had to go to church every Sunday and and obey all the commandments, and that's how you got to heaven. I'm so glad to know that Jesus has already done it for me, and I just need to trust in Him, and that's why people would believe. These days, you get a different response. More like, well, why do I care what you think about who God is, and what's going to happen to me after I die? Why should I agree with you? After all, you, you believe in stuff that I think is ridiculous. So remember the idea of the elephant and the, and the rider that we talked about. This comes from the world of psychology where we figure that people, if they hear a good argument, they're going to believe because it appeals to your rational mind. But your rational mind is just a tiny portion of how you make up your mind about stuff. The elephant, the rider is your rational mind. The elephant is your heart. It's your intuition. It's your emotions. It's what you want to believe. It's what you want to trust in. It's what you want to think. And so that's what's going to guide people's responses. This is why it's so hard to convert somebody when it comes to things like politics and faith, because they've already decided these are the good people and those are the bad people. And it's hard for them to see an argument, even a well-made argument from someone they think is one of the bad people. So that's why it's harder and harder. I know, that's not to say you can't still lead someone to Christ the first time you meet them. It still happens. There are people in our church that have that gift of evangelism that are just naturally bold, and they come to me with stories. I, I met a guy in, in the gym last week, or I was at the mall, and I led him to Christ, and I always say, hallelujah. It's just not. It just doesn't happen as often anymore. So we have to be committed to long-term relationships. Why? Because that person, it's going to take them a long time for their elephant to switch sides. It's going to take them a long time to see that you as a Christian, that doesn't mean that you're someone who's bigoted and hateful and judgmental, but instead you're kind, and you're courageous, and you have integrity, and you love them in a way that they've never really been loved before, and and you respond to stress and pain and and, and even evil things done to you in a way that's more gracious than they've ever seen before, and then their elephant starts to switch sides, and they're able to start to see the truth of Scripture uh, as they should. So, that's, those are two of the three aspects that I see of having a wise approach. Keep focused on the gospel, be committed to long-term relationships. But then the third, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight. When we get a chance to have conversations about faith with unbelievers, we have to make the most of those opportunities. You need to be ready for those conversations. And, and so we can probably all think of times that didn't happen in our lives. Like, for instance, maybe there was a time when you were talking to an unbeliever and they made you so angry that you just lost your temper. You lost your composure and you started, you started, your voice raised and you started lobbing accusations at them. You started, uh, you know, really defaming their character, attacking them personally. And now they can't stand you. You've lost that relationship. You have no ability to win them anymore because you were so mean to them on that one occasion. Um, or there, maybe you've experienced moments where they came to you with questions or with accusations or with charges against the faith, and you just felt overwhelmed. You just felt like they knew more than you. You were intellectual, intellectually overmatched, and, and so you just sort of got timid and let them dominate things, and, and they even made you start to doubt your own beliefs in a way, and so now you feel such a sense of shame around them, you never want to bring it up again because you don't want to feel that way again. Or, and I think all of us have experienced this, you never really had the conversation at all. And it's not that you chickened out, it's that you were just so afraid that you might lose that relationship if you took it down that road. And we talked about this last week when we talked about long-term relationships. And one of the things I said, and probably the meanest thing I said last week was, uh, you need to ask yourself, do you love that person enough to risk losing them as a friend? You have to love them enough to say, I have to risk that. I have to risk that to tell you the truth because I don't want you to miss the chance for salvation just because I enjoy spending time with you. But it's not that simple, is it? Because some of those people are your family members. You don't want to lose a relationship with your son or daughter, your grandchild, your parent, your spouse, your sibling, your aunt or uncle or cousin. You don't want to fracture a family, so you have to keep that in mind. And there are other people that you look at and you calculate and you say, you know, I'm the only Christian in this person's life, and if I run them off, they're not going to have any witness at all, so I need to I need to have great care, and that keeps you from having that conversation. So... What I wanted to, do, wanted to do tonight is suggest a couple of different resources for you. I'm not gonna talk a lot about this one, but I wanna re- tell you about it. It's the book, Tactics, by Gregory Kukul, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. I doubt he's in the room, so uh, I'm gonna say Kukul. Um, this book, our, our students studied this in this past summer. I, I first heard about it because my son brought it home and he read it cover to cover and really enjoyed it, so I got a copy for myself. And I liked it. So it is, it's called Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian con- Convictions. And it's what it sounds like. It's, it's strategies or tactics during conversations. And essentially, the, the idea is because we often feel like we are on the defensive, answering questions, and I don't know what to say, it's how to turn the tables in that conversation and get them answering questions instead by th- saying things like, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say that there's no God? What, what is the God you say that doesn't exist? What do you mean when you say that the Bible's full of errors? What what contradictions can you name? Uh, or a question like, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? And you listen as they tell the story of, of how they came to that belief system. And the genius of it is that puts the burden on the other person, um, that also gives you the ability to listen carefully and see the flaws in their belief system instead of the other way around. So you're doing two things when you ask them questions. You're making them articulate their beliefs, and that can make them start to doubt their own doubts about faith. But also, you will hear them say, perhaps, some things that you can come back with and say, have you ever thought about this? So, for instance, somebody might say uh, that he thinks you know we only believe in the resurrection because the church made that up 400 years after Jesus lived and you can say okay so you believe that the church made it all up hundreds of years after he lived but but galatians was written we everybody agrees just 20 or 30 years later and paul talks about resurrection in that have you ever considered that now i love the book i love the fact that in the book cookle says don't ever use this stuff to embarrass people because it would be tempting if you mastered his technique to use it to embarrass people who disagreed with you. But that should never be the motive of any believer in Christ. Your your hope is always to lead them to the truth, not to show that you're smarter or to make them look bad. But your goal should be to help them doubt their doubts about Christianity. Now, I'm not going to teach this because it would be a lot. Okay? But if you're interested, I've got it. You can come and flip through it and see if you want to order it. If you don't know how to order books online, I will do it for you. Just let me know. I, I will. I will. I promise. So come look at this afterwards. Um, the one I want to talk about tonight is a chapter in another book. So this is a book called A New Kind of Apologist. There was, an, there was a chapter in it. I think it's the first chapter, actually. And it's titled Christians in an Argument Culture: Apologetics is Conversation. I know that's a long title, uh, but the author is Tim Muhlhoff. He's a professor of communications at Biola, which is a Christian university on the West, in the West Coast. Um, communications, by the way, one of the courses he teaches is rhetoric. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion, it's persuading people to a new viewpoint. That's essentially what we're trying to do. Not win an argument, but persuade someone that Jesus is Lord. So his point is we live in an argument culture. And what he means by that is we live in a world, and I think you'll agree with him on this, where everyone wants to segregate themselves so that they're only around people who think like them. We used to segregate ourselves mostly racially. That used to be our big segregation, right? Everybody with their own color, and there's still some of that. But today our big segregation is I don't want to be around those people because they don't think like I do. And I hear this a lot. I hear people say, well, I would never want to live over there because it's so liberal. I, I couldn't live in a place that, that was like that. Or, uh, you yeah, I'm glad all these people are moving here from California. They've seen the light, but they better not bring their politics with them, right? I hear that all the time. And I understand, I understand. I, I, I would not want to live in, in a governmental system like they have in California, but at the same time, wouldn't it be better for us, and I know people are being funny, I get that. I'm not sitting there stewing in my in my own juices there and feeling self-righteous, but wouldn't it be better for Christians to say to themselves instead, hey, this is an opportunity. I hope I, I, hope I get to know some of these people who are moving here from, from more left-leaning states and who have in mind that people like me are just bigoted uh, idiots that that hate them, and then they come to know me and and, and get to know me and and see a real live Christian who believes in Jesus and and that I can show them something different. And maybe their elephant starts to switch teams. Why don't we see this as an opportunity? See, we're so segregated that we never really interact with each other, except there are two places. Two places we see disagreement On issues that matter, and that's social media and cable news. And about 99% of the examples we see on cable news and social media are terrible. They're terrible examples of how people of opposing positions should disagree, and no Christian should ever see either of those as a model for how to engage unbelievers. Um, So, that leaves us with questions that we struggle with. We, we struggle with questions like, and I think I've listed them on your notes, how can I be both bold about the truth and loving toward the other person? Sometimes it feels like it's an either or. I've gotta be this really nice person and make sure they know that they're loved or I've gotta be bold about the truth and risk making them angry, but how can I do both? Um, how can I conduct myself in this conversation in such a way that I'm true to my convictions without losing my composure? This is something I feel strongly about, it's hard to hear someone disagree with this thing that I'm passionate about without it making me angry. So how can I get there? How can I get to that point? And then number three, how can I protect our relationship if I go down this road? I don't want to lose this person as a friend or as a relative. I don't want to lose the opportunity to continue to impact their life. So how can I have this conversation without this person saying, I never want to see you again? So According to Muhlhoff, and I love this chapter. Again, the name of the book is A New Kind of Apologist. It's, written, it's, it's chapters by all kinds of different people, some of whom I've heard of. It's, it's a good book. You can take a look afterwards if you want. He says the answers are found in the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is known as the wisdom book of the Bible. Can I just tell you the whole Bible is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to know how to make good decisions. Wisdom is different than knowledge. You know the old saying, right? Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad, right? You can know facts. Facts are important. But wisdom is knowing how to apply those facts, how to make good choices, how to see the world through God's eyes. So the whole Bible, when you read Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you are growing in wisdom if you're applying it to your life. But Proverbs is a book that is nothing but wisdom sayings. It's simply, this is how life is. This is what's true about life. You you follow these precepts, you're going to make good decisions. So what he does is he takes uh, some principles from the book of Proverbs and he says, you follow these principles and you're going to understand people well enough to know what to say. I think that's useful. So there's four questions that you and I need to deal with whenever we have a conversation with someone about faith four questions that should guide how we respond. And the first question is, what does this person believe? As Proverbs 18:13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now that's good wisdom, isn't it? You've already got your mind made up. You just verbally vomit on this person and you haven't really considered what they believe. Uh, they may not even disagree with you about what you're saying, or they may not even want to talk about that. Their issue is something else entirely. Uh, Muehlhoff says in in these conversations, we tend to have agenda anxiety, and I like that term because his point is, we feel this guilt because in the past, there's been times when we didn't say enough, and so, okay, now I'm here, now I'm in the arena, now I'm in this conversation, I'm going to say everything that's on my mind, I'm going to say everything that I believe, I'm going to make sure they hear everything that I know about this subject, but we don't say the right thing because we don't know what they think. I'll just give you an example from my own life. I have a friend, and I haven't seen him in years, but we still maintain contact through Facebook. Uh, This friend and I were in the same college ministry in in college, Um, and then later, years later, I found out that he had come out as gay. Now, I can tell you for sure that this friend of mine would still consider himself a christian. So if you went to him with the assumption that he doesn't know doesn't know anything about Jesus and you started saying, well, my my friend, what you need to do is accept Jesus as your lord and savior. He would say, well, I already have. You'd need to know that about him going in. You'd need to know so you'd know what to say. And on the other hand, if, if you wanted to jump into politics and okay, you know, you need to understand that I don't believe in gay marriage and I don't believe that we should have to uh, abide by your preferences and, and we, we have our own belief system and you shouldn't try to impose that on us. Well, I, I happen to know because he's told me. He would agree with that. He would say, I don't, I don't want you to have to change what you do. I just want you to leave me alone to do what I feel I just feel like God made me this way and I should be able to live that way. Now, I disagree with him. But do you see my point? If you as a a believer met him and all you knew was this is a gay man, and you came in with assumptions about him, then you would lose the opportunity to have an important conversation because of those assumptions that aren't true. You'd need to know what he believes first. And there's an equally important reason, not just so that you wouldn't say the wrong thing, but that's part of showing respect. Remember, the whole verse we're basing this whole course on is is 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense or an answer to those who ask you for the reason for the hope that you have. That's where we get the term apologetics from. Um, But it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. We should, in all our interactions with unbelievers, even when they are not gentle and respectful to us, we should lead with gentleness and respect. And so why should they listen to what we have to say about faith if we're not first willing to listen to them? In fact, often, if we give them the chance to speak first, that gains us the opportunity in their minds to share what we believe as well. So one of the things I said on there was, beware the straw man argument. Now, many of you probably heard that term and know what it means. Some of you maybe have Heard that term and don't know what it means. And some of you have never heard that term before. So let me explain. Best way to understand straw man argument is: imagine that there's a bully in your school and you can't stand him, but you don't think you can beat him up. So instead, you make a scarecrow that looks like him, and you beat the snot out of it, and then you walk away feeling tough. That's that I just I just described. of the arguments on social media and cable news, right there. Because what happens is, whether they're conservative or liberal, Christian, non-Christian, what they do is they take the other side and they take their argument and they present a version of that argument that isn't really accurate. It's not really what they believe, but it's close enough that it sounds right, but it's, it's wrong enough that it's easy for my side to make it look ridiculous. So they take that argument and they pervert it and then they say, "See how stupid this is," and then walk away feeling like they've won an argument. That's a straw man argument. We, for instance, unbelievers do this to us sometimes. They'll say, "Well, you Christians, you just you just need to realize you you don't need to take over the whole country. You don't need to run everything just so you can uh, you know make us all worship your invisible sky fairy." Anybody ever heard nonbelievers say things like that? And you're sitting there thinking, "Well, I don't want to take over our country. I just want the right." to follow Christ and I'm not trying to dominate your life. I just want to tell you about Jesus because that's what he told me to do. See, it's easy when you put it a certain way to make someone's beliefs sound ridiculous, but you haven't really convinced anybody of anything. You've just inflamed your own side and turned the rest of us away. So let's not do that. Let me me give an example in a non-religious scenario. So let's say a husband goes to his wife and says, you know what, we never go to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. Every year we go to your family's house for Thanksgiving. Because, you know, I get it, your family's more important than my family. I I understand you think your family rules the world, your family hung the moon, and my family's the scum of the earth, and so we're never going to go to my family's house. I just wanted you to know how much that I I, I feel disrespected by that. And I'll go again this year, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Is he going to win that argument? Anybody? Anybody think he's going to win? No. No, he's not. He's not. Because first of all, his wife is sitting there thinking, well, listen, don't say we never go to your parents' house because we went in 2019, right before the pandemic, and we went in 2017, and then before that in 2012. And yeah, don't say we've never gone. And, And by the way, I don't think that you're Family's the scum of the earth. I love them. It's just I didn't know this was that important to you. She's not going to say any any of those things to her husband because she's so mad by this point. She doesn't want to talk to him. But that's what's going to happen. If instead he came to her and he said, "Listen, I need to understand. I, do you are you under the impression that I don't really want to see my family at Thanksgiving? That that it doesn't matter to me? I, I'm just curious." because it seems like we haven't gone there in a while and i would just like to know is that what you think cuz if so that's not really true i'd really love it if we could find a better way not saying he's going to win that one either but he's got a lot better shot if he comes to it with i don't really know what you think i'd like to hear now let's let's work this out now the point i'm making is you can't persuade someone until they feel like you understand them the first step is to be able to state their beliefs in a way that they would agree with. You're on the right road when you say to that other person, so here's the way I understand your beliefs. And after you get finished, they go, yeah, that's, that's pretty true. You're off to a good start. Now, for ex- for instance, you have a, a friend who is has told you he's an atheist. And if your response is, Oh, so you think that all religions should be destroyed? Well, how did that work out in Soviet Russia? How did that work out in China? How did that work out in Cambodia? Is that what you want? And they're sitting there thinking, "Well, I'm not a communist. I I, I don't, don't Don't accuse me of that. I'm just I just don't believe there's a god." So you start by saying, well tell me about that. What what God do you not believe in? What is the God you don't believe in like? Or, or how did you get to this point? Uh, what what can we how can we how can we find out more about what you truly believe? So the question two, after you establish what they believe, why do they believe this? Proverbs 1625 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We've all heard that. That's one of the more famous verses in the Proverbs. And I think you and I could agree that anybody who is on a way that seems right to them that doesn't lead to Jesus is on the wrong path. The question is, how did they get on that path? How did they get on that road? And we need to know that. Mulehoff gives specific questions to ask, and I wrote them down on your notes. Things like, when did you first start to think this way? Who's influenced your thinking the most concerning this issue? What books or movies? have shaped your perspective? Does your perspective deviate from your parents' perspective? You don't have to use those same questions, but those are just examples. My point is, don't assume that you know why they think the way that they do. There's a couple of assumptions that Christians often make about unbelievers that often aren't true and often aren't helpful. One of them is, well, People don't believe in God because they want to live their own sinful lifestyles and they don't want God to get in the way. Now that is true in some cases. I've met people and, and when you get right down to the root of it, is it's, well, I wanted to, I wanted to be with this person and, and my church told me I couldn't and so I was going to do that. I wanted to follow my own life's path and, and, and God got in the way, so I rejected Him. But most unbelievers, when you talk to them, it isn't that at all. The other assumption people often make, and this one cuts close to home because I think many of you in this room perhaps, I know many people who have experienced this, you're gonna gonna say, yeah, that sounds right. It's the assumption that says, you were fine, you were a believer, and then you went off to school and met some professor and he stole your faith. Now are there examples of that? I'm sure there are. But often when you talk to that person, when you really ask them, what was the journey that led you this way, they would tell you, Long before I went off to college, long before I got involved with that group, I was already starting to form these different opinions. That person just helped me articulate what I was already thinking. So we need to ask questions. How did you get to this point? What you find out is oftentimes it's not, it doesn't start with intellectual doubts. Now, sometimes it does, but most of the time it's not, well, I was just... I was in science class and I just thought, well, there's no way this is true and the Bible's true, so I can't be a Christian anymore. That's not usually the way it goes. Usually it starts with something like this. I was abused by someone in the church, a volunteer, a minister, maybe even a parent or a relative. I grew up around people who were Devout on Sunday, but the rest of the week I saw what they were really like and I don't have any use for religion after that. Or um, I experienced some pain and sorrow that I couldn't explain. I couldn't square it with what I was told about God. I, I prayed for my, my aunt or my mom or my brother to be healed and they died anyway. Or I prayed that this person wouldn't break up with me and she did. Or I prayed that God would help me achieve my goals and it didn't happen, so what good is he? That kind of thing. And I'll tell you this, and this is coming from my own experience. We do my own experience talking to people who've walked away from faith. We do our kids no favors by telling them that Christians are good and non-Christians are bad. And I know why we do that. When kids are little, we want to make things simple. We want to tell them, "Hey, just just stay away from those people outside the church. You stay you stay with the people who believe like we do." Uh, but we make it sound like anyone who's not a christian is is evil and, and and wicked and cruel and and they'll tear you up and people who are christians are all kind and good and, and warm and courageous and, and full of integrity and and what happens is that child grows up and he meets non-christians and he finds out no they're they're not evil they're they're just like me i mean this this guy's a muslim he don't want to blow up my house he just wants to raise his kids in a free country like i do this this guy's an atheist, and he doesn't want to destroy the church. He just just wants us to leave him alone. And you know, this guy, this guy, he's not trying to turn my kids gay. He just wants me to let him be. And 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 meanwhile, everybody I know who's Christian—they're the ones who are hateful. They're the ones who are judgmental. They're the ones who are trying to wreck everything and full of anger. And so that leads a lot of people down a road. You see what that what happens is their elephant switches teams. These are the people I like. Well, I want them to be right. And once you've made that decision, once your elephant, your heart has gone over here, then your rational mind doesn't want to hear rational arguments about Christianity. Suddenly, you find reasons to disbelieve. And so a book that says, well, the church made up all the stories about Jesus' miracles and his resurrection 400 years later. Well, that starts to make perfect sense to you. That's a very rational argument because that's what you want to believe because that's where your heart is now. But you need to know these things. You need to hear their story so you know what led them down that road, so you know what conversation to have. And then question three you need to understand is, where do we agree? Now that may surprise you. But finding points of agreement with non-Christians is an important step. And In fact, uh, Mulhoff says it this way, the greatest skill needed by Christians in today's argument culture will not be the ability to debate but the ability to recognize and affirm God's truth buried in the perspectives of our neighbors and friends. It's more important to find points of agreement than it is to be able to argue with them, according to him. This is an expert on rhetoric. Now, his, his proof from Proverbs is that the last two chapters of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30 and 31, were written by two non-Israelites, Augur and Lemuel. There's truth outside of the people of God is his point. I don't think he's saying that Augur and Lemuel weren't inspired by God. His point is we can find points of agreement with people who aren't just like this. So here's an example of a point of agreement. You may not know this. Some of you do. But if you're talking to, for instance, a Muslim about Christianity, it's important for you to know that they revere Jesus just in a different way, but have some points of agreement with us. For instance, Muslims believe, if they they believe the Quran, they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life, that He performed miracles, that He ascended to heaven, and that He's coming back someday. They believe all of those things that we also believe. Now, there's a lot of important things about Jesus that we know are true that they don't believe, and which is why we need to tell them about Christ and, and win them to Christ. But isn't it good for them, for us to know that we can start with certain points of agreement? Another example, I've known a lot of unbelievers who had very similar values to me. They love our country. They love their family. They love, uh, they love doing good deeds. They, they see the need to help the poor. They see the need to be kind. You can find points of agreement with people. And what that does is that brings the temperature in the conversation down. Suddenly, you're not an enemy who's trying to, to lead them to tre- to treason against their cause. You are someone who's pretty much like them, but who has found a different path. And they can start to see... Maybe they're right. If they're right about these things, maybe they're right about those things, and that brings me to number four. So, based on this knowledge, how should I proceed? And he quotes Proverbs twenty-four, three through four: "By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all present precious and pleasant riches." And that's the whole that. Those two verses are the whole key to his technique because as he says, you need three things to build a house. You need knowledge, you need understanding, and you need wisdom. So question one, what do you believe? Well, that's knowledge. That's, under, that's, that's coming to some knowledge about what their belief system is. Questions two and three are about understanding. I now understand how you got here, how you came to these beliefs. I now understand the things he and I have in common, the things we agree on. But the last question is about wisdom. You have to have the wisdom to apply your knowledge and your understanding to that relationship. You have to have the wisdom to say, based on everything that I now know, here's what I need to say, or here's the way he puts it. And I like this. With this person, at this time, under these circumstances, what is the one thing I should say? He says that very specifically because his point is, don't go into the conversation thinking, I am going to be so smart and articulate that I'm going to completely change their whole way of thinking about everything, but instead go into it with one goal. This person thinks that Christians hate unbelievers. This person thinks that Christians hate anyone who doesn't think like them. I want to show them that's not true. This person thinks that the Bible teaches a God who is angry and, and vengeful and, and hates people, I'm going to show them that no, the Bible teaches a God of love. Come, come to the conversation with a single goal and say, okay, here's, here's how I'm going to make that argument. Based on what I know of this person, based, I know of, based on what I know of their beliefs and their history and the things we have in common, here's the best way to appeal to them. You see, that's a lot more complicated than the way we were trained when we were kids. Just here's the Roman road, right? Just tell them these three verses and boom, ask them for a response. And again, those techniques still work, just not as often anymore. Now, there's not a single conversation you can have no matter what. Now, the conversation varies depending on the person, depending on the circumstance, depending on the situation. You have to use wisdom. What is If I were this person, what would most help me to change? And here's what I want to say to you, and I hope you'll hear this. That doesn't mean, after all this you know, 40 minutes that I've been talking, that now anytime someone comes to you and wants to talk about faith, you're going to immediately know what to say. Most of the time, in fact, I predict the way it will go is they will come with questions or with, with you know, the, they'll just come with, hey, I, I want to tell you why I'm not a believer. And my advice to you is let them talk. Listen respectfully. Ask questions. Let them give their presentation. If by the time they're finished talking, you still don't know what to say, tell them, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I, need to, I need to give that some thought and I'll get back to you. And then go home. Pray about it. Talk to some trusted Christian friends. Say, here's, here's what this guy said to me the other day. How, do I, how should I respond? What do you, what do you think about that? And then come back to them. You know what you've done? You've established the fact that you listened to them respectfully. You treated them kindly. They'd have to be a real jerk not to give you the same courtesy. And especially if other people witnessed it. I'm not saying that they will absolutely give you the same courtesy, but you've got a lot better shot. And you come back to them and you say, I really appreciate the things you said the other day. I really appreciate the passion and, and the articulateness that you used when you... Uh, it's, it's ironic that I just made up a word, articulateness. <laughs> but um, I really appreciate the way you said all that. I think you expressed yourself well. But I, I just wanted to share, here, here are my thoughts about that. And you have the opportunity to make that one point, that one thing, that one truth that you want to express to them in that moment. So let me just tell you an example from my own life, and then we'll be done. So I I know this guy named Daryl, not his real name. Uh, Daryl and I have only met in person a few times. Uh, most of our interaction is online. We're fans of the same team. Actually, the way we met in person for the first time is I was at a game and he walked up to me after the game and he said, you're Jeff Berger, aren't you? And I said, yeah, that's not something that happens all the time. And I said, how did you know? And he said, well, I recognized your picture from social media, which told me that he thought enough of me to pay attention to my picture and remember it, which I I found kind of touching. So, uh, here's what you need to know about Daryl. Daryl was raised in a Christian family in another state. Um, Christian youth group, went to mission trips, you know, got, got saved as a young kid, baptized, went to mission trips, youth camp, Christian concerts, the whole, the whole Christian youth group scene of the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Um, and then he was basically that kid I described earlier. Got out into the world, met people who weren't believers in Jesus, members of other religions, atheists, agnostics, people who practiced other alternative lifestyles and realized, well, I like these people. They're my kind of people. The people I grew up with, now I I see them differently. They seem very angry. And I don't know why they hate these people so much when those are my friends now. So his, his elephant switched sides. And so the things he learned growing up didn't make sense anymore to him. Uh, They didn't seem like the truth because they produced that kind of fruit. So Daryl will post on social media a lot about our team, and so we talk about our team a lot together, and uh, we agree on some social issues, and so we interact about those. When he talks about politics or faith, we are poles apart. And so most of the time, I don't respond when he says something about those issues, especially politics. Um, But sometimes when I know I've got something useful to say, I will respond. Now, this one day, the day I want to tell you about, this wasn't in a public forum. I don't remember how we got into this thing where he was just direct messaging me. So nobody could see this but him and me, and we were back and forth discussing Christianity. And he said the following to me, not a direct quote but pretty close. He said, I can never be a Christian again because I can't believe in a god who would send most of the human human race to hell just for choosing the wrong religion. That just seems like a totally ridiculous metric to use for deciding people's eternal fate. And a message came into my inbox, and I read it, and I thought, wow. My first thought was, if that's what I thought God was like, I wouldn't want to believe in Him either. So I prayed about it, and I came back, and I said, well, I don't think that's how God is. Instead, I believe God is not trying to find reasons to keep people out of heaven, not trying to find excuses to reject people. I think it's the opposite. I think he's trying to save as many people as he can. I believe the Bible teaches that God is on a rescue mission to a dying world, trying to rescue as many people as possible before it's too late. And he wrote back and said, well, I've never heard it presented that way. And that, that was the end of our discussion. Now, Daryl's still not a believer in Jesus. I think I would know if he was. And we don't talk about it all the time. We still interact about faith occasionally. But what happened that night, I think, is I was able to say something and walk away and think, "Okay, I did what I was called to do. I, I said what needed to be said." And and maybe that put a chink in the armor. That maybe that that broke down one of those walls. That maybe that helped him start to doubt one of his doubts about. The faith he once believed in and that's what we're called to do you keep having those kinds of conversations and you will see people come to know christ people draw nearer to him and maybe you won't be the one who reaps that harvest maybe someone else will but you'll be a part of it remember what we said last week it's not all harvesting sometimes you're just gardening sometimes you're getting the 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 crop ready and this is part of that process So don't be intimidated by these conversations. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to be ordained. You don't even have to have read either one of these books I just mentioned. But simply love people, understand them, know what they believe, find common ground with them, and then approach them in a wise way, saying, if I were that person, based on everything that I now know and what they're going through in this moment, what would I need to hear? I hope I've given you some confidence. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the truth that we get to proclaim and the truth by which we are saved. And I do pray for my friends that I mentioned, and I pray that I and others would continue to have these conversations with him that would help him to see who you are, that would help him to see um, that your truth is true and your grace is real. Lord, as I was telling that story, there are other people that folks in this room were thinking of, people that they are are hurting for, worried about, and long to see come to know you. Give them wisdom to know how to have the right kinds of conversations. Lord, you know the kinds of conversations we're gonna have in the days ahead, some with people we haven't yet met, but I pray that we would be ready for them to respond humbly, gently, respectfully, but with great wisdom. Lord, we pray these things according to your will, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.